my wife and I had four children and we had four children in five years. And so it was an intense time for us there, right? But one of our primary tasks with children constantly on the way was we needed to be ready to name them. That's one of the things you got to do. You got to name these critters, right, as they come into the world. And so we, as most parents, spent a lot of time and a lot of conversation talking about what were we going to name them because that marks a child. They're going to carry that name their whole life. So we lived back in the dark ages where typically you didn't know the gender ahead of time, so you had to be ready. You had to have a boy's name. You had to have a girl's name. And I kind of like that. I kind of like not knowing that surprise. So we had a boy's name and a girl's name each time. The first child that was on way, we had it narrowed down to, it was, by the way, everything I'm about to say is probably wrong. I didn't check with my wife on this. And so I'm probably making half of this up, I, but I think I'm right. But anyway, don't ask her because I'll be wrong. Um, anyway, <laughs> I should have totally talked to her before I had this sermon. What? Really? Okay, okay, good. She listened first service and she said I did good. So now if I can just remember what I said first service, it will be set. All right, so the name we had picked out was Sarah and <clears throat> for the girl. And sure enough, we had a daughter. And this sounds weird. I don't know if any of you can relate. This sounds weird, but we were holding her in the delivery room and within seconds, we looked at each other and said, she doesn't look like a Sarah. Now, isn't that weird? You can say that about a tiny newborn, but we're just like, this is not a Sarah. And so we went immediately to our second name, which was Rebecca. And we're like, she looks like a Rebecca. And so that's who she was. That's who she is to this day. Second child, girl's name we had picked out was Emily. Emily was a lock early on. We never wavered once she was born. She looked like an Emily. We were good. We had Emily as the name. The third child coming along, the girl's name we had picked out was Larissa. Larissa's a pretty name, isn't it? I don't know. We didn't know any Larissas, I don't think. I don't know where that name came from, but we liked the name Larissa. And we also had this little twist on it. We thought to ourselves, and her nickname will be Lacey. So it's a Larissa, Lacey, and as she grows up, she can choose which name she wants to go by, Larissa or Lacey, and she's Lacey to this day. Our fourth child coming along was a boy, and our boy's name we had picked out was the name Micaiah. Now, Micaiah is a Hebrew name. It's an, old, it's an obscure Old Testament prophet. You can read about him in 1 Kings. I think it is chapter 22. Uh, he's got a great story. But anyway, we like the name Micaiah. It was strong. Um, it was unusual. But we decided to set that name aside because as we thought about it, we were like, ah, that is a lifetime of mispronunciations and misspellings. And we didn't want to do that to our son. So we we're like, okay, so we shortened it. A more common form of Micaiah is Micah. And so our last child, our son, was named Micah. And we loved the names of all four of our kids. But a lot of thought went into them. Choosing a name is a big deal. Now I'm curious. I'd like to do a quick poll here of you. And your choices are <clears throat> like it, dislike it, or ambivalent. And we're talking about your name, all right? How many of you basically like your name? You're happy with your name. You always have been. Okay, that's good. That's, that's the majority. I'm Dave. I've always liked being called Dave. It's good. How many of you, if you're 
perfectly honest, will say, I've never really been a big fan of my own name. You kind of feel like your parents did you dirty a little bit, okay? <laughs> Few of you, okay, okay. And how many of you are ambivalent? You don't particularly like it, but you don't hate it. You're kind of in the middle somewhere. Okay, all right, all right, good. Understand that. <clears throat> how many of you, I'm curious, how many of you were named after someone specific? You, you have a namesake. Wow. That's quite a few. I'd say about a third of you. That's, that's impressive. Um, names. Names can stand out. Names can be unusual. Names mark a person. I remember when we were in Bible school together, my wife Karen worked at a um, children's ministry, a youth ministry, where there were siblings who were a part of the group that she was in charge of, and they had very unusual names. Their names were Lamangelo and Arangelo. I've never met another Lamangelo or Arangelo, but you understood their names a little bit better if you saw them in print, because you know what it is in print? Lamangelo and Arangelo, you understand, is lemon jello, orange jello. Kid you not. I went to middle school with a gym shoe. I'm sure you went to school or have known people with unusual names, but names are important. I bring all that up to say, in the scriptures, in God's word, names are important because names always have significance. Names always have meaning. They're super important. And so some 700 years before Christ was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah predicted the coming Messiah, a savior, who would come, and it's probably the best known verse in Isaiah, but in this prediction, he talks about what the Messiah would be named, and, and in so doing, describes what our Savior would be like. And so um, this is a verse that we're going to land upon every Sunday in Advent. So for the next four weeks, I want to massage Isaiah 9, verse 6, into your heart into your mind, into your soul. Every week, we're gonna kind of massage it in there so we feel it, we know it, we experience it, and we allow it to change us. And so uh, follow along as I read Isaiah 9, verse six. It says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. In other words, he's gonna be a king. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to be large and in charge. This isn't an ordinary child. This is a child destined for greatness. And the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to see within this verse, we learn something about this king. We learn something about this ruler. First of all, look at the capacity of his rule. The capacity of his rule will include, first of all, wisdom. In being called Wonderful Counselor, it emphasizes the wisdom that this child will have, that this king will have. The capacity of his rule is also defined by his power. He's called Mighty God. And so he'll ultimately be the creator and sustainer of the universe, all-powerful. And then we see the character of his rule. He'll, it'll be paternal 
in being called everlasting father. Now the word paternal in our society has really kind of grown to have like a negative connotation, like paternal as in controlling or condescending or overbearing. And that's unfortunate because that, that's not what paternal is supposed to mean. This is paternal in the best sense of the word, like a loving father, protective a provider. That's the idea. And, and the character of this ruler is he's paternal, everlasting father. And it's peaceful, being called the prince of peace, that he brings peace between us and God. He brings peace between us and each other. He brings even tranquility, peace into our own hearts as we live in a very harsh world. He's the prince of of peace. And so for each of the four Sundays of Advent, we're going to focus in on each one of these names. So as we unwrap this gift to see the meaning, the significance behind the names, and in so doing, it'll help us to know Christ better and to love Christ more. So why don't we pray and then we'll dive into our first name, okay? Please join me. Father God, we thank you for the gift of Christ and we thank you, Father, um, for all the wonderful names and, and what they mean. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us, help us to understand and apply to our lives and that our hearts would be open and receptive. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so what does it mean to call Jesus our wonderful counselor? Well, let's take a look at some scripture to shed light on the, the meaning of this name. In Isaiah 28, verse 29, it tells us that the Lord of heaven's armies is a wonderful teacher or a wonderful counselor. I love the fact that one of the most predominant occupations represented in our church is teachers. We have a boatload of teachers, and I love teachers. The heart they have for our world and for kids and the effort they put into it for relatively little pay is amazing. I love the fact that our church is chock-filled with teachers. Have you ever known, have you ever experienced a really good teacher? If you have, you know what a rare gift it is. To sit under a teacher that makes you excited about the topic. They never make you feel stupid when you ask questions. And they give you a love for whatever it is they're teaching. And you probably had a personal connection with that teacher as well, right? And that really helped the learning. But man, to have a good teacher is an amazing thing. I'll never forget just a few years ago, um, I visited the classroom of uh, Dale. Dale is one of our founding elders, and he was a professor at uh, Harper for quite a few years. And one day I went and sat in on his class. And I've got to tell you what, it was an amazing thing to watch because you could tell Dale was in his sweet spot. Dale was in his element. And he was just an amazing professor. You could tell the connection he had with his students, that his students responded to him in a very lively way. And he was full of passion and energy. And you could tell he, had, he knew every single one of his students by name. And just the love he had for what he was teaching was just incredible. It was an amazing thing to watch. To have a wonderful teacher to have a powerful teacher is a gift. And folks, that's our Messiah. That's Christ. He is an amazing professor, what he can um, speak into our lives about. Now, Isaiah also had some other things to say, some predictive things to say about the Messiah that 
have a bearing on the kind of counselor he is in chapter 11, verses two through four. Check this out. It says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That happened at his baptism. When John baptized him in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit came down and infused these qualities within him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked." There's so much here that gives us confidence in our counselor. I love the fact, a couple of phrases I want to point out to you. It says he does not judge by appearance. Isn't that a human thing to do? All of us make snap judgments on people all the time. We, we, we just look at a person's appearance, how they carry themselves, and we think we know them. We jump to conclusions, right? But it says that Jesus doesn't judge by appearance. He looks into a person's heart. He looks at a person's motives. He understands a person's background. He knows a person's complete story. And so he doesn't make snap judgments about you or your family. He understands your entire story. And it says he does not make decisions based on hearsay. You see, God doesn't have his ear to the streets to hear what the scuttlebutt is about you. He doesn't come to conclusions about hearsay, but he knows our story. He knows our background. He knows the abuse we've endured. He knows the trauma we've endured. He understands the things we've struggled with our entire lives. He knows our strengths. He cares about who we are as a person. And I love the fact that he specifically points out that he makes fair decisions for the exploited. He gives justice to the poor. The very people that our society tends to marginalize, Isaiah goes out of his way to say, that's who he's going to be a hero to. And it's important to understand that, that, that God is for the underdog. And so that's our counselor. That's our teacher. And it says he's our wonderful counselor. Now in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, the word wonderful means to separate to separate, to distinguish. It's the idea of being extraordinary. It's usually used within the context of miracles or the supernatural, but it's just the idea of, man, it's incomprehensible. It's amazing. It'll blow you away. And so Jesus is our wonderful counselor. So what does that mean for us? The implications are far-reaching and numerous, but I want to point out just two things. There's many things. I want to just emphasize two things of what it means for us that Christ is our wonderful counselor, okay? Here's the first thing. He understands your struggles. He is a counselor who understands what you have been through. Have you ever made the mistake of opening up to someone being vulnerable with someone who totally didn't get you, who you, you shared something deep and meaningful and they immediately just tried fixing you. They didn't lament with you. They didn't sit with you. They didn't try understanding you. They just started spewing platitudes to try fixing you. 
they misunderstood what you said. I've made that mistake before. I can think of a couple of specific times where I poured out my heart to somebody and it was a huge regret because they, they had no empathy. They didn't understand where I was coming from and I wished I hadn't trusted them. I wished I hadn't opened up to them. Probably we've all experienced that at one time or another. But I want you to know that when you bear your soul to Christ, and the truth is he knows your soul already anyway, but when you engage Christ and you open up to him your greatest fears and your biggest struggles and your joys and all that there is about you on the inside, he always understands. You struggle with depression and you can have people around you who say, well, hey, you need to smile more. Or, hey, what do you got to be so negative about? Christ would never say that to you. You're struggling to overcome an addiction. And people close to you say, well, hey, if you were really serious, you would just stop. Well, gee, that's helpful. I've never thought of that, right? In dealing with loss, people can heap platitudes on you like, well, hey, they're in a better place or at least they're not suffering now. And that may be true, but they never took time to lament with you, to sit with you, to cry with you, to just put an arm around you. Instead, they just started throwing out cliches and trying to fix you. Understand that that's not our wonderful counselor, that he come alongside of us and loves us and listens to us and understands us and empathizes with us, that he was very lonely and isolated and frustrated with life at times. And so he understands what you're going through. Two verses. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah is chock-filled with messianic prophecies. And, and so we're in Isaiah a lot. And he says in 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. So he's been there. For those of you who come out of backgrounds where you experienced abuse or severe neglect as a child, where you've experienced severe trauma in your life and it scarred you permanently, you'll always walk with a limp. You need to understand Christ has been there. Christ knew what it meant to be misunderstood, what it meant to be rejected, what it meant to be slandered what it meant to be exhausted. Christ has been there. Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He understands the things you struggle with, for he has faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. And so we have a sympathetic high priest who can come alongside of us and counsel us and teach us and help us make sense out of life and to find direction and find meaning and to grow past the pain that we've experienced in our past. You can trust him, you can open up to him and he will not reject you. And so friends, when we think of Christ as our wonderful counselor, understand that means he understands your struggles. Here, this is the second and final thing I want us to think about. What this also means is that his counsel is always spot on. His counsel is always spot on. 
Have you ever been given bad advice before? Probably most of us have at one time or another, right? Anybody ever recommend a restaurant to you and it was like gross and the service was horrible? Have you ever had anyone recommend a movie to you and so like a moron, you buy those expensive tickets and sit down, within 10 minutes, you're like, this is horrible. How could they possibly think this was a good movie? We had a friend a few years back would always recommend movies to Karen and I and like idiots, we'd always believe him and go. And halfway through the movie, we're like, next time we see him, we're going to kill him. This is a horrible movie, right? We've all experienced that. Maybe you've asked for directions someplace and, and people have given you bad directions and you, you've gotten lost. Maybe even you've been in a setting where you've actually been with a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And they gave you advice that was garbage. It didn't line up with the values of God's word at all. It was coming from a perspective that, that just isn't a part of who you are in the least bit. And the bottom line is it was just bad advice. We've all experienced that. And the good news is this, that our wonderful counselor, his counsel is always spot on. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Now, I know that's a simple truth as followers of Christ that we can accept this, but I want to remind you of that truth that Jesus knows what he's talking about. When he speaks into our life, it's always relevant. It's always helpful. It's always true. Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29 says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. This reminds me of what they said about him when he was 12 years old. You remember the story when he got left behind in Jerusalem and, and he was teaching in the temple as a 12-year-old? And as a 12-year-old, they were amazed. They said, where's this kid come from? How did he get this kind of insight into life? But that was who Jesus was as a wonderful counselor. And part of being a wonderful counselor or an effective teacher is that you can make the complex simple. And I want you to see that Jesus made the complex simple. He could take the most profound spiritual truths, the most important life lessons, and boil them down to where we could wrap our brain around it, where we could have handles where we could say, yeah, I can think about that. Yeah, I can remember that. It's concise enough and simple enough to where I can work on that. And I want you to see how Jesus did this. Matthew 6, verse 33. We all want to figure out how to live life, right? We all want to figure out how can I live my best life? Well, what do I need to focus on? What do I need to do? Well, Jesus made it clear in Matthew 6, verse 33. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Don't pursue the things of the world. Other people pursue having a nice house, having a nice car, having nice clothes, uh, you, you know, and, and a career path that's going to take you to the next level. And, and you know, it, it's, it's about making sure your next meal is secure, that you have all these physical things. He said, don't do it. He said, don't do it. That's what heathens do. That's what those who don't know God worry about. For those of you who are spiritual people, seek first the kingdom of God. Make the things of God your top priority. And then the promise is all these other things will be added to you. Just seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously and he will give you all that you need. Now, Jesus took it a step further in helping us understand what's important in life and like what we got to focus in on. In Matthew 22 verses 36 through 38, 
they asked him, they said, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, I want you to understand this was a trap. These weren't true spiritual seekers. They were trying to give Jesus a hard time. And the gist of it was this. When they said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? If he were to say, ah, you shouldn't steal. Well, then they would say, oh, so it's okay if I lust, huh? Lust isn't that bad, huh? Or, or if, if, he, if he said, thou shalt not murder, and they would be like, oh, so it's okay if I use God's name in vain then, huh? It was like, they thought they were slick and they thought they had him in this situation where they could like drive a wedge in, between him and the crowds and you know, uh, make his teaching suspect. And so I love what Jesus says here. He, Jesus replied and he took 613 different commandments. In the law of Moses, there's 613 different commandments. He took all of those, which is very complex. It's a lot to remember. And he boils it all down. He makes it concise and brings it down to this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. There it is. And the order is important. First, love God. That brings righteousness. That brings truth. That brings insight. Learn to have a relationship with God to where he is your friend, where you worship him in spirit and in truth, and you love him. You walk with him. And then take that love that God has given you and bless those around you and love other people. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. So friends, he can bring you freedom. He can bring you peace. He can make you whole. He can heal you of your hurts. He can give you meaning and purpose. He can help you overcome your hate and your bitterness. He can do all those things for you. But understand, he doesn't give you a perfect life just as Christ did not have a protective bubble around him that shielded him from heartache and misunderstanding and rejection and pain and persecution. When we follow God, we're not guaranteed an easy life. And in fact, in some ways, becoming a follower of Christ can make life harder in some ways. But what God does promise is he will be with you, that he'll help you make sense of things, that he'll give you the endurance, that he'll give you the strength. All those things are true because he's the counselor who has a passion for you, he has a passion for life, and he wants to give that same thing to you. I wanna encourage you to embrace the wonderful counselor this Advent season, Understand who Christ is. Open your heart and life to him. Allow him to speak into your life and see if his advice isn't spot on. Ask God to give you a humble heart to hear and receive. Understand that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. That's a gift that God's given you. I encourage you to trust in him today.